Thunderbird Park, USA. I'm Tavis Smiley, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you to download our app right now uh, at KBLA 1580. Download our app and take us with you anywhere in the world and listen to us in real time, but only if you download the KBLA 1580 app right now. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of our program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast of this program and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. But I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. Let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today in our second hour. Although traditional therapy can be beneficial for people who are trying counseling services for the very first time, it might actually be inadequate for others who might need an oppression focused approach. Black and brown folks in particular cannot just think their way out of racism and oppression. To believe so, uh, I think it's fair to say is simply myopic and for that matter, Eurocentric. Considering how many facets of our lives have been in some way, shape, or form colonized, it's not all that shocking then to realize that therapy itself, therapy itself has fallen victim to colonization. We will talk about decolonizing therapy with clinical psychologist Dr. Jennifer Mullen in hour two. In our third hour, when Kevin Powell's elderly mother became ill, he returned home every week to take her grocery shopping. Walking behind her during those trips, Powell began to hear her voice, her stories, and her language in a new way, examining his own healing while praying for hers. The acclaimed author, journalist, activist, and filmmaker will join us live in studio today in Hour 3 to discuss his latest text, Grocery Shopping with My Mother. But in this first hour today, let's talk politics with HuffPost reporter Paul Blumenthal, who I am pleased to welcome back to this program. Paul, how are you today, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on again. It's good to have you back. Thanks for your time. Glad we got the hour. So much uh, to talk about uh, vis-a-vis politics in this first hour. Let me start with this. Um, A new survey, new poll out that finds that a majority of Americans, get this, a majority of Americans don't want Biden or Trump to run again in 2024. What do you make of it? Are you surprised by the results? Uh, I I guess I'm not terribly surprised by the results. Uh, I mean, I think that you know, Donald Trump has uh, always been fairly unpopular ever since he first ran for president beginning in 2015. Uh, you know, after a lot of everything that he's done, uh, which is a lot from, you know, trying to overthrow the government that was elected for Joe Biden uh, to taking confidential documents to his Mar-a-Lago resort and, you know, many other things continuing to deny the election of 2020 and other elections ongoing. Um, it's understandable that people are, are, you know, continue to be, uh, you know, getting sick of him. Mm-hmm. As for Joe Biden, um, you know, it, it's it's a difficult thing because he's done a lot for the Democratic Party, probably more than a lot of people thought he could do with the very slim majorities he had in Congress. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, you know, he just turned 80 years old. Donald Trump also in his upper 70s. Um, you know, th- these are 
It would be the oldest presidential election in history, again, older than 2020, which was the oldest presidential election in history right after 2016, which was the oldest presidential election in history. So, uh, you know, I think age is a lot of the driver of this, that people, you know, want to see a new generation take on the presidency. I mean, you know, you had Barack Obama, who was a you know, young man, uh, become president. And uh, then it's become, you know, 70s, 80s uh, people in charge. Uh, you know, this is totally out of the norm for most of American, for all of American history, actually. So, I mean, it, I, I understand that there are some people who want to see politics turn the page to the next generation. Yep. I get that, too. And yet I want to push back and I, only because I'm trying to uh, uh, get the best out of you and see how see how you rock with this. <laughs> um so Joe Biden isn't the only person in Washington who's running stuff who's 80. <laughs> uh, Nancy Pelosi yeah. was Speaker of the House. And to your point, Joe Biden has done, in, in many respects, remarkably well getting uh, things on his agenda passed, uh, despite the slim majority that he had. Nancy Pelosi just stepped aside as Speaker. She's above 80. Steny Hoyer is not a spring chicken. James Clyburn is above 80. So the top three people running the Democratic Party on the House side. Again, none of them are, you know, are are, are that young. Maxine Waters, chair of the uh, of the of the House Finance Committee, you mm-hmm. know, is in her 80s. I mean, and on the Senate side, McConnell, I mean, none of these guys are, you know, are particularly young. And again, I'm not naive. I get it's the presidency. But there also comes along with AIDS uh, wisdom, uh, know-how. Uh, and I, I wonder sometimes whether or not, and I'm just you know, playing devil's advocate, I wonder sometimes whether or not there's a bit of ageism uh, in our critique of, of Biden, number one, what do you think of that? And number two, again, it's, I understand they're not the president, but he's not the only person in Washington who's been running things and doing quite well who's above 80. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's definitely the case. Uh, but, but you know, as, as you noted, um, people like Pelosi, Hoyer, Clyburn have, you know, they, they've taken the moment to step aside for a new generation. Hakeem Jeffries stepping into, you know, Democratic House Party leadership. Uh, probably the next Speaker of the House if mm-hmm. Democrats win control back. Um, you, I, I think that there is a sense of, of, a, of a desire to turn the page. I think another thing to look at is in the 2020 primaries, you had a lot of people who supported different candidates who wound up landing on Joe Biden after South Carolina as sort of a default pick mm-hmm. that maybe they weren't, they don't love Joe Biden, but they saw him as the best option to beating Trump. Maybe they don't they still don't necessarily love him, but I don't see anybody in the Democratic Party coming to challenge him, and I don't see him stepping aside. Um, and a- as you mentioned before, like he has done a lot for the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party agenda um, that a lot of people did not think was going to happen. So he has a, a very, very strong argument that will. I, I think, keep anybody from yeah. challenging him in a primary. Yeah. When we come forward, uh, speaking of that, uh, challenging in the primary, uh, when we come forward, I want to come back to that notion about challenges in the primary um, and a few other things I want to ask Paul Blumenthal about vis-a-vis President Joe Biden. His number two, Kamala Harris, was here in Los Angeles yesterday to swear in uh, the new mayor, the first woman and the second African-American to be mayor of the City of Angels. Uh, Karen Bass is now officially, she's at the office right now, she's officially the mayor of the city of Los Angeles. Congratulations, Karen Bass. We'll talk about that and some other items as we talk all politics in this hour with uh, HuffPost journalist Paul Blumenthal, who's on KBLA Talk. 15.
I guess it's Paul Blumenthal in this hour. We're talking all politics with the uh, journalist for HuffPost. So I mentioned uh, before that new, for that break, uh, Paul, that uh, Kamala Harris was in town yesterday swearing in Karen Bass as the first woman to be mayor of the city of uh, Los Angeles. Uh, and Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, everybody was at the swearing in yesterday. Um, and uh, Governor Governor Newsom was there. Um, I'm not sure how Karen Bass really feels about Gavin Newsom right now. Uh, he refused to endorse her. He didn't endorse anybody in this campaign uh, between her and the billionaire challenger Rick Caruso. She had to uh, fend off a $100 million plus frontal assault against her, which we'll talk about in a second, about money in our politics. And she did it successfully. So, again, now she is the chief executive officer of this city. But Gavin Newsom um, said during the campaign, they're both friends of mine. Now, granted, you know, people were upset about that. Many people were, including yours truly, because Caruso Literally, you know, the moment before he decided to run, changed his party affiliation to Democrat. Uh, Karen Bass, lifelong Democrat. Gavin Newsom, Newsom, lifelong Democrat. So I, I, I wasn't buying it. With all due respect to the governor, I wasn't buying this argument. They're both friends of mine. Yeah, but only one of them has, you know, stood in line or stood beside you in terms of their progressive principles over the course of her career. So I was just bothered by Gavin Newsom, you know, deciding that he wasn't going to endorse because both of them were his friends. Okay, fine. It's over now. She won. He shows up yesterday anyway for the ceremony, even though he did not endorse her when she ran. So it's politics. They're, they're big boys and big girls. They can handle it. I'm raising this because Gavin Newsom, as you know, made news a week or so ago, but he said that he was not going to run. He was not going to primary Joe Biden, whether Joe Biden runs or not. In fact, he said he does not intend to run for president in 2024. I hear you saying rather, rather, rather uh, assertively that you don't see anybody who's going to or put another way can successfully challenge him in a primary. Why do you feel so adamantly about that? Well, I think that I mean I think Joe Biden has has been far more successful than people uh, thought he would be, having a fifty fifty split Senate, a four seat majority in the House. They passed you know hugely important legislation, so many different topics. Um, you know, got a Supreme Court nomination through, has confirmed more judges than anybody else at the this point in his presidency. Um, you know, he's uh, uh, accomplishing a lot of of big policy changes. In a, in a way that is surprising people, I think, and is uh, uniting a lot of the different factions of the party. I mean, I think if, you know, he comes from the more moderate faction of the party, uh, so I, I couldn't really see somebody from that side or the mainstream part of the Democratic part, Party challenging him in a, in a primary. There wouldn't really be a reason for that. Perhaps a mm -hmm. progressive, somebody from the Bernie Sanders side would. Sanders has said, um, you know, he was not going to primary Joe Biden, but if Joe Biden didn't run, he would consider it. Is there a younger person who would primary him? It doesn't really seem like anybody wants to put their neck out there and, and lose badly mm -hmm. uh, in, in a primary. Uh, you know, things would be different if he said he wasn't going to run, but there is no real indication of that at this point. Well, to your point, as you well know, as a student of history, um, uh, Ted Kennedy, uh, then senator, challenged Jimmy Carter the last time a Democrat uh, president has been challenged uh, in a primary, Ted Kennedy, uh, primary Jimmy Carter. It got ugly. It was a, just a, a vicious and uh, nasty bloodletting. Jimmy Carter came out on top. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that, you know, you know, that uh, if um, Joe Biden were primary, he would necessarily that person would necessarily lose big time. I'm not sure about that, but you are. Tell me why you believe that. I mean, I, I think it would just depend on on who ran it and if there are any like changing circumstances in the next 
year. Right. Um, you know, big, big, big things can change. You know, LBJ, uh, you know, won huge in 1964, then the Vietnam War kind mm-hmm. of knocked him out of the the, the renomination in 68. Um, Carter and Kennedy, the situation more, Car- Carter was a very unsuccessful president and disrupted the entire Democratic Party, the congressional party who really disliked him, right. uh, leading to Kennedy challenging him. Here, you know, I, I think that the party is fairly united uh, and supports a lot of what Biden is doing. There isn't much dissension. I mean, there's far more dissension on the Republican side against each other over, you know, should Trump be running again? Should it be DeSantis? Should it be somebody more moderate? Um, You know, I I see more division on the Republican side than on the Democratic side. So, I mean, if somebody, say a progressive, lesser known than Bernie Sanders runs against Biden, I I just don't see them doing as Mm -hmm. well uh, as, you know, somebody would be, be doing if Biden were less popular in the party. Yep. Uh, it may very, it may very well be the case that Joe Biden does not get primaried. I'd, I'd like to avoid that bloodletting, but it, it may be that he doesn't get primaried, Paul. But, but, it, but it raises another question to my mind, um, which is when you look at all these polls and you see the same stuff I see every day, uh, whether it's the Washington Post, New York Times, there've been a number of polls that have do- been done over the last few months that have made, uh, drawn the same conclusion. I'm uh, talking specifically to Democrats. Every poll uh, that I've seen in the last few months suggests that Democrats themselves do, in fact, have some concern about whether or not Biden ought to be their nominee in 2024. And every poll that I've seen, again, from The Washington Post to The New York Times, says that a majority, the numbers vary depending on the poll, as you well know, but the majority of Democrats polled uh, by these institutions, these papers, uh, have said that they would prefer to see somebody else as their uh, standard bearer in 2024. Here's what I'm getting at. Even if he doesn't get primaried, and you don't believe he's going to be primaried, I'm not sure he will be either. But even, even if he doesn't get primaried, if those polls um, have any, any anything behind them, it could very well be that Democrats are unenthusiastic about re-electing Joe Biden. And as you well know, and I've said many times on this program, sometimes uh, communities lose elections by the margin of their absence at the polls. They just sit it out, and they lose by the margin of their absence at the polls. So he might not get primaried. But um, if these polls continue to show the same thing, that Democrats are concerned about him being uh, top of the ticket in 2024, might that lead then to uh, a lack of enthusiasm? And if that happens, no matter how much disarray there is on the other side, and you're right about that, eh, who knows at that point, Paul? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's definitely a, a concern for Democrats to see those kind of numbers and, and for Biden. Um you know, the, there was a, a similar concern, of course, for the, the midterms that just happened, mm-hmm. um, you know, where the incumbent president, incumbent parties normally does poorly because of poor uh, enthusiasm mm-hmm. among their supporters. And, and this time around, you know, more Republicans turned out than Democrats. And yet Democrats still did very well for a midterm. But only because but only they barely but only, lost but, the House. Yeah, but primarily because, as you know, they had, they had so many bad GOP candidates running. Mitch McConnell yeah, said that. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that that I, I don't really see the Republican Party necessarily changing very much going mm-hmm. into 2024. Uh, you know, you could have a similar issue where de- Democrats want to turn out um, for Biden in opposition to whoever the Republican is. Uh, I mean, I think that that's a big driver of our politics. Of course, the enthusiasm drops and rises could depend, could, you know, be different depending on different communities. I mean, one thing that we saw 
uh, in both 2020 and in 2022 were drops in enthusiasm in a lot of uh, urban black communities for Democrats. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had Mandela Barnes uh, running in Wisconsin, who lost by about 1%. And, you know, a lot of that may have been driven by low turnout in his hometown of Milwaukee. Yeah. Um, And so, I mean, there is something there that Democrats have to deal with. Uh, where the the low enthusiasm may not be coming across the board, but it, of of Democratic voters, but from certain yeah. Democratic communities, including key communities like Black people. Yeah, to your point about Mandela Barnes and Black people, he's the person I felt the I, I felt the most uh, sympathy and empathy for in this last campaign to lose by one percentage point, and the data is very clear here that he lost in part because uh, his hometown of Milwaukee did not turn out as they should have or could have to give him that victory. It's just, I, I know he must be uh, having a lot of sleepless nights, even since uh, election day to be that close to winning and to lose because your hometown uh, and oftentimes black people in this case uh, didn't show up to vote. And it just, it hurt his chances. I, I think of Tom Bradley, who I work for speaking of uh, the mayor of this city, Karen Bass, the second African-American uh, today now, as mayor of the city of Los Angeles, Tom Bradley was the first for 20 years. Many people know, of course, listen to this program, that I, I had the honor of working as a young man for Tom Bradley. And it's never lost on me that Tom Bradley lost being governor of this state, governor of the state, by less than one vote per precinct. Not even, but by less than one vote per precinct. Tom Bradley lost out on being governor of the state of California. Those are the kind of numbers that... Again, just uh, I, don't, I don't know how you get past that. Life does go on, obviously. Uh, but I'm, I'm praying for Mandela Barnes because that result was just way too close. And again, to think that your people at, at home didn't turn out in Milwaukee to put you across the finish line uh, is, is, is problematic. Um, the other thing, though, that I want to get to um, that you said a moment um, you said something a moment ago that I want to come back to about about 2024. Uh, and that is your point that you don't see much difference between how the Republicans are going to operate in 2024 uh, given how they operated in the midterms. And I, I want to push back on that uh, because one of the reasons they lost so so big, as you know, Paul, is uh, those bad candidates that they had running in states, including Herschel Walker in Georgia. But as you also know, those many of those bad candidates, most of those bad candidates were on the ballot because a guy named Donald Trump forced them uh, on the ballot. He was able, with his popularity, uh, to get a lot of bad candidates on the ballot. I'm not sure Trump is going to have that sway in 2024. So tell me why you believe that we're going to see a repeat in 2024 of what we saw now with a bunch of bad candidates if Donald Trump doesn't have the sway then that he had this time around. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I look at is, you know, who the Republican Party's base voters are and what they want. And the the, the party seems to be very connected to, to its base, uh, which is in, increasingly sort of detached from the mainstream priorities of American politics. And you look at what the, the new House majority is going to do, holding hearings to defend January 6th defendants, saying that they're political prisoners, holding hearings on Hunter Biden, uh, trying to you know put Anthony Fauci in prison. I mean, these are bizarre things to be pursuing at this moment in American politics, mm-hmm. unless you're just trying to destroy your opponents. And I, I will turn off a lot of voters. As for the presidential field, uh, you, you know, people are saying Donald Trump is falling in the polls, which he is. Uh, how long that lasts? It, unclear. I mean, he clearly has a very strong hold on a large portion of the party's base. Uh, he's not going anywhere. 
And even if he does somehow manage to lose a Republican Party primary, what does he do then? I mean, we haven't seen him gracefully lose and walk away from the stage and endorse someone else yet. I mean, that can can you even imagine him doing that? No, I cannot. (laughs) And speaking of Donald Trump, when we come forward after news, traffic and, and sports. Democrats now have access to uh, six years of Donald Trump's tax returns. Uh, They have it now. And we'll talk to Paul Blumenthal about what he thinks Democrats do with access to those uh, uh, Trump tax returns, even though they're no longer running the House just a few weeks from now. And speaking of no longer running the House, the House Judiciary Committee uh, had intended to probe uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, and all these leaks and corruption that seem to be coming out of the court, whether it's Clarence Thomas's wife or Samuel Alito's wife. And we'll talk about that uh, when we come forward as well. A great deal more to cover as we talk politics in this first hour with HuffPost journalist Paul Blumenthal. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Glad to have you with us in this hour. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. This is KBLA Talk 1580. And if you missed our Block party for Karen Bass of the weekend. You missed a you missed a soiree. It was it was all that and then some. Thank God for Jesus. The rain stayed away until Sunday. People had to deal with that going to the inauguration. But Saturday we had a party, and I want to take a moment right quick to thank um, uh, all the black elected officials who showed up uh, to celebrate with us this weekend. Of course, we want to thank uh, Karen Bass. Uh, the now mayor, then the mayor-elect, but now the mayor who came and hung out with us for a good while on Saturday, and the community had a chance to celebrate her. I certainly want to thank Brian McKnight and Guapale and Club Nouveau who came and turned it out with some amazing performances. Uh, it was just a great time, uh, and all those persons who helped sponsor this event last weekend, thank you, thank you, thank you, and most important to the community who came out uh, by the hundreds to, to celebrate uh, Karen Bass and wish her well. Uh, in her journey, which begins today as the mayor of the City of Angels. Uh, So thank you to everybody who had a hand in making last weekend, especially my staff of talent here uh, at KBLA Talk 1580. It was just an amazing, amazing gathering in the community last weekend uh, for Karen Bass. One of my favorite things, if you go to any of our socials, go to any of our platforms, you'll see it. There are just tons of great photos, tons of great video. Uh, We live stream this over the weekend. So if you missed it, go to our YouTube channel. You can see the entire live stream, all three hours, starting with the Crenshaw High School Marching Band, who marched in and kicked us off. It's all on our YouTube channel, but you'll see tons of photos. But there's a photo you're going to love. My favorite photo was actually shot by a reporter for the L.A. Times. Our huge banner that says, as our logo does, we don't black down. We don't black down. Great photo of Karen Bass standing in front of that with her fist up in the air. And that photo is now is trending everywhere. That photo of Karen Bass standing in front of that logo. So a great eye. I love reporters who have great eyes, photographers who have great eyes. He caught that image just at the right time. Her hand in the air and behind her this huge uh, banner that says, we don't black down. And I've seen that photo used already in a variety of places since Saturday. So go to any of our platforms, check out all of our socials, and see the photos and the videos of what you missed. And so the next time you hear KBLA Talk 50 say we're having an event, you'll want to be there. And uh, you don't believe me? Go to our socials, and you'll be convinced that you should have been there. It was a great time. So, again, thanks to everybody, and congratulations once again to uh, the new mayor of the city of Los Angeles, uh, Karen Bass. We continue now our conversation with Paul Blumenthal, who's a journalist for HuffPost, uh, and delighted to have him back on this program as we're talking national politics. Um, Paul, let me let me stay with that theme for just a second, then we'll move on. 
and you've written about this. We'll get to Donald Trump's tax returns in just a moment. Uh, but what say you about the money in our politics? I mentioned a moment ago that Karen Bass was able to hold off a $100 million-plus frontal assault from a billionaire named Rick Caruso, as you well know, and all kinds of folks across the country having conversations now about whether or not that means anything for the conversation about money in our politics, uh, whether or not this is a game-changing moment or whether or not it's just, you know, an isolated incident and money is still going to be, always will be, the mother's milk of our politics. I mean, uh, I, I don't see anything necessarily changing uh, to get money out of politics. The, the 2022 midterms were by far the most expensive midterm mm-hmm. elections in American history. Um, and then, you know, for Caruso, since ever since Trump won the presidency, you've seen a lot of people, rich people coming yep. in self-funding elections. Yep. You know, Caruso, clearly an example of somebody inspired by, you know, Trump to spend his money to win election. Uh, you have a lot more candidates like that who've been running and and being more successful even. I mean, you know, California, you had Meg Whitman mm-hmm. once upon a time ran the most expensive campaign in the country at, you know, like $90 million, which has now been blown away. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you also have a big explosion in smaller donor fundraising, uh, upper middle class people donating money. Um, you know, you, you have, you know, one senator who uh, has only been in Congress for, for two years, Raphael Warnock, who has raised more money than anybody else ever in the Senate, $300 million. And he, I mean, he's had to run in five elections yeah. you know, in, in uh, you know, two years. So, yeah. um, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of interesting things happening there mm. uh, with big money, big money donor donors exploding, uh, small self funders coming out of the woodwork, rich, these rich people who want to, you know, be the next Trump. And then, you know, small donor fundraising, which Democrats seem to have really, figured out how to dominate. There are two things that Paul just said. I want to put a final point on and we'll move on. Number one, that point about Raphael Warnock. Think about this. Think about this. He's only been in politics for two years and had never run for anything prior to two years ago. And he has raised and spent more money than any candidate in history at that level, the Senate level. $300 million that guy's raised uh, in, in a couple of years. I said the other day, Paul, I'm glad Raphael won because I'm tired of getting text messages. Tabis, can you chip in $5? Can you chip in $15? Can you chip in? I hate that phrase, chip in, chip in, chip in. No, I can't chip in nothing else, Raphael. Stop asking me. Uh, and he's my friend. I love the brother. Uh, but uh, $300 million, and he got a lot of it because people kept chipping in, obviously, over that two-year period. The other thing that, Ra- that uh, Paul said I want to come back to is Meg Whitman. Meg Whitman spent $90 million, Paul, running for governor. Paul Rick Caruso, mm-hmm. Paul spent over 100 million running for mayor. So that just that it's it's a fascinating dynamic for me. 90 million Meg Whitman spent trying to be governor of California. Caruso spends 100 million plus trying to be mayor of Los Angeles. I digress. I think you see the point I'm trying to make. Let's talk money vis-a-vis Donald Trump. Democrats now have access uh, to those six years of Donald Trump's tax returns. And again, they're not going to be controlling these committees anymore in just a few weeks, but they at least have access now to the information. What do you think happens with that information, Paul Blumenthal? Well, I, guess, I think that there's only one real thing that they can do with it. It's unclear if they will or not, mm-hmm. which is they can. the committee could vote to refer the returns to the whole House, and the House could make them public by publishing them in the congressional record. Uh, that would just make them 
public, you know, then journalists could go through them. Uh, you know, this has been a long battle from when Trump was actually president mm-hmm. and the courts, you know, long court fights. He's very good at delaying anything from happening by using the courts. Um, so at this point, it's sort of unclear what could really be learned from this that we don't already know. You know, the New York Attorney General, Tish James, brought this lawsuit against the Trump Organization claiming tax fraud and, uh, you know, so many other things. And he, he was recently, you know, the, well, not him, but the, t- the Trump organization was found guilty on multiple charges of fraud, uh, breaking the law, lying about how much money they had, lying to get loans, all of these kinds of things that, you know, we, we knew that Trump was involved in. Um, and, and that involved access to the same kind of tax records. Um, you know, the Democrats obtaining them is a big success for them in the courts and for Congress's oversight powers as well. Uh, and it could provide more public information on, on what was actually in Trump's taxes that he never released the first presidential candidate to not do so since Richard Nixon. Yep. We know this is uh, exactly what Trump is going to do. I want to ask you, Paul, how you think it's going to play, how it's going to play. And that is that, you know, as he's on this campaign and we know why he jumped out early trying to get in front of these indictments earlier than anybody who's ever announced running for president, by the way. Um, but how does he... How does it play, you think, when he starts saying, see, uh, the Democrats got my taxes and they, they read them in the congressional record. Journalists are now digging through them. They're after me. Uh, when the indictments drop, they're after me. Um, how's that going to play? We know we know that's going to be in. We know it's in his playbook. But how's it going to play when he starts running that play? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a good question because, you know, traditionally in politics, when somebody gets indicted or, you know, there's a huge investigative story into them that blows up their whole their whole self narrative about themselves, uh, you know, being successful or not being a liar or a fraud, um, you know, that usually hurts them. But as we've seen with Trump, often this helps secure support from his base, mm-hmm. who he's sort of attached to through this mutual sense of victimization. Um, and, you know, him being attacked, as he always says, like, they're after me because, uh, you know, they want to hurt you mm-hmm. to his supporters. And, you know, I'm the one standing in the way of them hurting you. Uh, it's, it's this reinforcing victimization that uh, seems to bolster his support among the base. Um, I don't see that necessarily changing outside of a, can- a, re- a Republican candidate attacking him successfully on this um and so far nobody seems to be willing to do that we know yeah we know that the house is about to be out of control whether kevin mccarthy ends up being speaker or not we'll come back to that with paul in a second and unpack that i said before on this program that uh for the first time in history if kevin mccarthy can become the leader of the republican party in the house and become the speaker it'd be the first time ever that the speakership gavel went from one californian to another person from the same state from nancy pelosi to kevin mccarthy um, the the uh, baton would, would pass, so to speak. Uh, we'll talk in a moment about whether or not McCarthy is, in fact, going to be the speaker. There's all kind of articles and all kind of conversation uh, about the drama. Uh, and uh, Kevin McCarthy's made some threats here and there. We'll get Paul's take on McCarthy as speaker, whether that's going to happen. But I was about to say that either way, whoever the speaker is uh, here shortly, uh, the, the House is going to be out of control. No doubt about that. But the Supreme Court is already out of control. And there are questions here, and Paul has written about this, about what the House Judiciary Committee can or will do, might do, might not do regarding this 
Supreme Court corruption. And I think corruption is the right word with all these leaks that keep coming out. Again, whether it's uh, Clarence Thomas's wife uh, misbehaving or Samuel Alito's wife misbehaving or Samuel Alito, for that matter, um, allegedly leaking um, decisions from the court in advance. I mean, the Supreme Court is absolutely out of control. Uh, and the data, again, is clear. Uh, they have the lowest ratings uh, ever. Nobody seems to trust the Supreme Court anymore. And that's dangerous, I think, in a democracy. So a great deal more to talk about when we come forward. Paul Blumenthal of HuffPost on KBLA Talk 1580. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where truth prevails. The tricky station is down the dial. Paul Blumenthal of HuffPost, you've written about this, sir. Talk to me about the uh, Supreme Court being out of control. Um, obviously, no code of conduct, no code of conduct rules exist for the Supreme Court. We see these leaks that keep coming out. Uh, the House Judiciary Committee on Democrats wanted to probe this Supreme Court corruption. Uh, now the Republicans are about to take over, no matter who the speaker is, which we'll get to in a second here. Where do you see this going or not going, as it were? Well, I, I think, you know, the, the House Judiciary Committee held a hearing last week mm -hmm. into this allegation that Samuel Alito leaked his this, the outcome of his 2014 decision in the Hobby Lobby case, mm -hmm. which related to Obamacare and the provision of um, birth control by, by corporations for free uh, cover, coverage of that by corporate health plans. And um, they, they, they had uh, the Reverend Rob Schenck come and testify, who's this guy who ran a lobbying campaign targeting the conservative justices, trying to get them to issue stronger anti-choice decisions. Uh, and through that campaign, he had supporters try to ingratiate themselves with the conservative justices, one of whom became friends with Alito and his wife. And from there is where the leak allegation was made that he had leaked the outcome to Reverend Schenck's supporter, which helped them run their PR campaign when the decision came out. Um, you know, the conservatives and Alito have vehemently denied this. Reverend Schenck, who has switched sides, he was a, mm -hmm. a rabid anti-abortion activist, is now more moderate in his politics, testified under oath that he, you know, he has said, I did receive this information. All of my allegations are true. So he's willing to say that under oath and detailed elements of his lobbying campaign. Now, where does this go next? The House Judiciary Committee will now be under the control of Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio, uh, unlikely uh, to say the least that he's going to follow this lead. But thanks to uh, Senator Warnock's victory in Georgia in the runoff election, Democrats will now have a real majority in the Senate. And that means that their committee structure will now allow them to issue subpoenas without any Republican support. So the Senate Judiciary Committee is where the action will take place on this in the future. And Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who's, you know, been very strong in criticizing uh, the Supreme Court on these issues, is the lead of the subcommittee that covers the courts. So, I mean, I, I expect there to be more hearings on this in the future in the Senate. Our remaining moments with Paul Blumenthal when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Right now. So, uh, Paul Blumenthal, in the three or four minutes I have left with you, um, what's your sense? And I've had a chance to ask this of others, but not you. And the closer we get, the more real it gets. Um, your sense of um, what this divided government is going to look like. Uh, and let me start, I should say, 
by asking what you think of the fight um, for who's going to be the Speaker of the House. Uh, you know this stuff you covered every day. Uh, it was at once a foregone conclusion uh, that Kevin McCarthy would be the Speaker. I'm not sure that he is right now. You're closer to it than I am. What are you hearing? Uh, you, you know, I, I think uh, you may know as much as I do. It's very unclear. There are five or six Republicans who say they won't vote for him under any circumstances. Um, and uh, it's, you know, unclear if they're trying to bargain for something from him. Uh, you know, they, they want some kind of rules changes that will uh, give them more power on the floor of the House. Uh, McCarthy has already given in so much to so many of the far right members of his caucus, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, allowing them to hold hearings uh, on January 6th defendants. Um, so uh, I really don't know what's going to happen there. It's very up in the air. The House GOP caucus, you know, their majority being so slim uh, and their their caucus being so chaotic. It's, it's really unclear if he can survive to even become speaker if he becomes speaker how for how long can he even survive then mm -hmm. uh in that position i mean the republicans really do eat their own at this level i mean pushing out john boehner pushing out paul ryan mm -hmm. uh it's a it's a real thankless position to be in yep um so how do you view uh the next couple of years for 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 we citizens um the democrats to your point have more power in the senate uh, but it's going to be a hot mess in the House. So um, what happens? Does anything get done in Washington? Or are we about to see gridlock on steroids? I mean, I think that that's, that's a good way of putting it. It's going to be very, very chaotic. Uh, the Republicans in the House, uh, you know, are trying to get revenge, essentially, on Democrats for impeaching Donald Trump twice uh, and will hold, um, you know, hearings on every possible topic they can imagine. Uh, regarding Hunter Biden or, uh, you know, Twitter, F Anthony Fauci and COVID, uh, investigating all of these tangents that they've gone on over the last few years with an attempt to either try to find some kind of crime that's been committed or to impeach people. They've already stated that they want to impeach Homeland Security uh, mm -hmm. head May Mayorkas. Uh, you know, after losing the Senate, What's the point of all of this? Also, they only have a four-seat majority, and can they even rouse the votes to, for an impeachment? It's unclear. Um, it's, a, it's a very chaotic caucus. I, I don't see them doing anything constructive for the country. Uh, you, you know, and then beyond that, on a on policy level, um, you know, we have a debt ceiling fight coming up, and they've already said they plan to use this to leverage... Uh, you know, to, to hold the country and the global economy hostage to be able to cut Social Security and Medicare. No. So, I mean, uh, you know, they want to enact their long term, very, very unpopular plan uh, by holding a gun to everybody's head on this debt limit. Unfortunately, the Democrats have not moved to uh, essentially eliminate the debt limit in this lame duck period of Congress that they still control and don't they don't plan to. Um, so, I mean, that's that, that's going to be the big thing hanging over the next Congress is this yeah. debt limit fight. You know, we saw that with Obama mm -hmm. uh, back in 2012. Yeah. Um, and I think it'll be even worse this time. It's um, going to be a fascinating uh, next two years, <laughs> uh, to say the <laughs> least. And uh, we'll be talking to Paul Blumenthal, uh, journalist for Her Post, uh, as we move through uh, this season of uh, this winter of discontent <laughs> in these United States. 
Paul, good to have you back on, my friend. All the best to you and happy holidays until we talk again. Yeah, thanks. You too. My pleasure. Hour two of Tavis Smiley after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 15.